0: Alright, we're back on Puck Talks. This is uh, September 30th, the day after the World Cup finale, and we've got our friend Chris Johnson in the room with us in the studio. Thanks for coming, Chris. It's
1: good to get up north of Bloor Street every once in a while here in downtown <laughs> right?
0: Toronto. Right? Uh, so we so we just saw the end of the, the World Cup last night. It was a, it was a two-game final. Uh, Team Europe, the surprise, and Team Canada, not so much. Uh, I think I think what interests me about this tournament and and your experience with it because you're you're right there every day, is that there were mixed feelings about this tournament. Whether it be uh, you know is this the NHL versus the Olympics? Uh, is this a tournament fans care about? Uh, is Team Canada too good for the competition? Um, but I but I I was really interested by what by the reaction I saw, on, especially on Twitter last night with with the the athletes in particular. And you might have been there. You would have been there talking to them. Uh, I saw a tweet from Kevin Kurz uh, in San Jose saying it was a so-so tournament, and Be- and Brent Burns responded to him saying not so 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 from our perspective. Uh, what what surprised you about
1: Brent Burns with beer goggles? That's on right, it too, exactly. The photo we Everyone, Carrie Price,
0: so- beer bo- goggles. Uh, what what surprised you, and what did you learn about how the players felt about this tournament, especially after last night when it was all said and done?
1: Well to be honest because I started off I went to Team Canada's training camp in Ottawa and and th- there was no doubt for me basically from the first couple of days there that they the players were engaged and that that they were interested in in putting an effort forth you know we even saw in some of the pre-tournament games not just the Canada US games which stood out but you know some of the ones even played in Europe that there was there was hitting there was the hockey played at a level frankly you don't see at, in NHL preseason or early regular season, let alone, you know, middle of September. So I didn't have much doubt about the players. There's certainly all sorts of stuff swirling around the outside. I think almost an overfocus, probably from some of our media colleagues on what the perceived problems with it were because, you know, depending on how you measure these things, basically every game was full. There were a few empty seats, but the tickets were sold. The sports that I know in here in Canada got tremendous ratings, like exceeded the ratings the company expected for TV Mm -hmm. to the point where they're saying, like, only hockey can give you that kind of rating. Even the the 2.1 million, I believe it was, for the first game of the final, we haven't got the one for the clincher. You know, even the Jays at their height, I mean, maybe if they make it to the World Series, are not bringing in that kind of thing. And and I'm not crapping on the Jays, I'm just saying, Despite all of sort of the negativity around this, the players seem to love it. And there's a lot of evidence that people were at least watching it or keeping track of it. So, you know, for this, given that it's the first tournament in my eyes, I know there's other ones called the World Cup, but this is a brand new thing being reintroduced. No, you know, I, I think it was pretty cool. And Team Canada even celebrated probably because of the way they had to, to sweat to win that last game.
2: I mean, some games were better than others. Um, but, like, what do we take away from this in terms of the quality of? of the hockey because i mean it, we had the best players in the world here some games felt a lot lighter than that you were saying that team canada was hitting in training camp what do we take away from the quality of the hockey was this a, a, an accurate show of the best players in the nhl
1: to me it was i mean we we missed out on a couple of potential things i mean i think everyone wanted to see team north america play team canada just for the spectacle of it. It might have been the happiest arena you've ever been in your life where I assume both teams would be just cheered for everything they did. It would be all positive, which is sort of unusual. But... The the problem is, and actually, the dirty little secret is, and I love international hockey. Is there's always bad games in international hockey tournaments because you know there's just not enough countries that can legitimately win these things. Which is part of the reason you know that they made these these combo teams that you're going to get lopsided games or you're going to get games where the score might be close, but one team is playing in a very specific way. You know, channeling the inner 1995 New Jersey Devils or something to to really suck out any of the potential opportunities. So there was a bit of that. In there, but to me, you still had the best hockey players on earth, and we saw some amazing moments I thought uh, some amazing goals. Sidney Crosby had a few where he just seemed to decide, okay enough of this and make a play happen. Obviously, everyone loved seeing team North America just play a game without structure and use all their speed and talents i mean it to me, it was a good showcase. I actually think there's a challenge now for the NHL that it's it's going to feel like a step down when we start seeing what happens in mid-October.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's different... There's pros and cons to each, to like a best-on-best best tournament, and then going back and watching the 82-game grind. But you mentioned it, like, to me, and this is to both of you, like, watching Sidney Crosby, maybe we forgot, and I don't know how that's possible, but maybe we forgot that he was otherworldly. And I think a tournament like this kind of if nothing else just reminded a lot of us that maybe aren't there with him every day just how good he is and just like the heights that he can reach too
1: well and he's at a perfect point in his life I mean he was in a really bad place in October and November and you know he's kind of opened up about that a little now that he's distanced himself from it and obviously done some things that have made him forget about it or put it way more in the past with how he's responded but you know, he's, he's still at a point of his career where I think he's performing at, at what we can call a top level. It, it probably won't last too much longer just based on age and what we've observed in every great player that's ever played the game. So, you know, I think he's aware of where he's at, you know, kind of fundamentally that this isn't going to last forever. And, and you know, I th- it was a benefit for him to play at such a high level in the playoffs because he basically didn't take the summer off. He took like, a week off. And went right back at it. I mean, t- he's obviously a driven athlete. You don't ever become as good as he is on talent alone. But I mean, he w- he's just so dedicated. Even after everything he's done, he's a serial winner, as Mike Babcock <laughs> called him, which I thought was just never heard that phrase used, and that was pretty uh, accurate. And and you know, it, it was cool. I mean, he's never had a moment like that. Really, I mean, Ryan laugh was talking about, you know, he played with Crosby at the 05 uh, World Juniors the 2010 and 2014 Olympics, and he said that that's the best he'd seen him in those events where just everything came together. I mean, like, we know Steven Stamkos is a world-class player, but he didn't play that well in this. He was struggling. He was doing things you wouldn't expect. He flubbed a shot totally, which you don't see an NHL player do very often, an open opportunity in the, in the clinching game against Team Europe. But everything just kind of clicked together well for Sidney Crosby, so it was, I thought it was kind of cool to see him at that level. I mean, he like there was no debate about the no, MVP. No, I mean, yeah. this is this one, there's no Phil Kessel uh, <laughs> lovers out there on Twitter getting angry at the sports writers who voted him in for that one.
0: Well, maybe a little, maybe a little, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, in, in 1987, the Edmonton Oilers, Wayne Gretzky, they win the Stanley Cup and then they have a short summer before the Canada Cup, and uh, I remember reading in Ed, Ed Wills' book uh, Gretzky del Mew that gretzky and i think he revealed in his book as well that that at one point on the bench he actually just had to like relieve himself because he was so exhausted uh did you see any evidence of that i know athletes are a different caliber now did you see any evidence of guys uh, maybe particular crosby like uh, he won the mvp but did you were there any instances where you s- saw the short summer wear on these guys
1: In some of their faces, you know, a few of the guys mentioned that no matter how much work you do, when you jump into those games, like your your groins and your hip areas start to feel tight the next day. Uh, Even you know when you play at that level, there's just no way you can can't just jump into that even when you're the best of the best Uh, Mike Babcock said there's a few times some players he didn't name them asked not to go back on the ice at a point because they were feeling tired I mean we saw the ice times down considerably for basically across team Canada I mean uh, they had the luxury team Europe had to play on Zay Kopitar like it was game seven every night of the Stanley Cup final but um, you know I, I you could tell I mean they just they're not it's not even just the games they played for me it was I don't like watching practice normally but watching four days of practice in Ottawa was impressive like these guys were not screwing around from the first minute and you know I think it's part of what makes this particular group special that they found a way somehow they have the right focus I think everyone puts you know their own interests aside which you know it's a, it's a cute notion that every team says happens but I don't think always happens in these tournaments Well, for Team Canada it has with this group and like they came there ready to work and they and they they were business like and you know, it's it's so difficult to do. I think it's it'd be much easier for them when they look around, they see the same stars that we see and go, Oh, we're gonna win this thing and kind of be casual about it, or just assume it's gonna happen. But, you know, these guys don't leave anything to chance. And um so I, I did see an element of like this is way more extreme than what they would have been experiencing in the NHL, what they would have been experiencing in preseason games with ten regulars on the other side. I mean, a lot of these guys were grateful for that. Because uh, they feel and and you know time will bear it out that they're going to be ready to play at a higher level come October twelfth, just because they've you know done something that none of them, other than Joe Thornton, Jay Bomeister, and a few European guys, uh, have done before in terms of playing this sort of tournament at this stage of the season.
0: You can you can choose how much you want to look into stuff like this and when we know from the with the stanley cup ceremony that the captain will always choose the next person to pass the trophy on to and who's that player going to be and you take it with a grain of salt but sometimes it really has meaning did you see any meaning in Sidney crosby passing the world cup trophy on to joe thornton uh, as the first person uh, after the event and the, i mean of course i i thought pittsburgh san jose in the stanley cup final was there something else there did you notice that or th- have a thought about that
1: Well, those two certainly had a few clashes in that series. I remember one Thornton cross-check across Crosby's back that he probably hadn't forgotten about. Although, if you go up and down this roster, the numerous guys have fought and had that sort of thing. I think it was more... And I didn't ask Sydney, but I, I do believe it was more just a sort of a recognition of Joe Thornton and how long. I mean, he played the 97 World Juniors, I believe. Uh, you know, there's, there's a, there's kind of this idea within Team Canada of like, you know, a service time or something that, that, you know, I think that those guys are especially aware of because, you know, they don't have to do this. I mean, I know we all kind of want to, even me especially I want to say that this is this great thing but they gave up a month to be here and and when you're Joe Thornton's age and you're coming up off a cup win and you've already won a world cup and an olympics and a world junior you've won everything maybe you might value that time more but he chose to go there he was playing eight minutes a night most nights and sacrificed you know his own time for the greater good and and you know I think just the fact that he's done that over the years within that group that that's what's cherished and then it went to Steven Stamkos next and I and I wondered if that was just for him missing Sochi. Yeah, uh
0: yeah. if
1: if just again, it's sort of the recognition, that they almost probably don't even have to say it among each other, but they know that each of them has had so many of these great moments but missed out on a few too. And and you know, for Joe Thornton, for a lot of these guys actually, I believe that'll be their last game with Team Canada. And but for Joe Thornton especially, I think it's a pretty safe assumption, you know, that you know, he was a surprise in some ways to make this team, that that, that was it for him and to, to to leave it i guess being recognized by his teammates that way that probably you know made his heart feel pretty good last night
2: i think it was good to just see i i feel like it was in the the round robin um joe and 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 sid connected on a goal and and they there was smiles shared between them and i think a lot of us did a double take thinking of that cross check right thinking like
1: these two Particularly Thornton on Crosby, like it was, it was pretty vicious. Well, just you, a few
2: months ago, I just
1: recalled this. I remember the opening face-off of Game Six, which the Penguins won. Right, Crosby hacked Thornton yeah. right off the opening draw. Kind of, I think, a message sender, like I'm here to play yeah. and take no prisoners. It's amazing that they can set it aside two months later. I, I don't. I mean,
2: we all know that that you know you you get in that room, you 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 put the shirt on, and and, and we can build it up. We can build up the mythology all we want, but. You put on that Maple Leaf, I think you probably do forget about a lot of things. Um, but speaking about that, you mentioned you mentioned two things. You mentioned the kind of workmanlike business approach that Team Canada took, and you also mentioned that this is, could be the last tournament that a lot of these guys play for Team Canada in. They allowed eight goals this tournament. They allowed three in Sochi. Um, and we love big, big questions on this podcast. Is this the greatest Team Canada ever?
1: the the core group for sure. I yeah. I I've, I've done a lot of soul searching, talking to people, you know, try to pride myself on being well versed in this stuff and I don't think there's any question that we've never seen a group of players that have had the run of success. You know, and I'm looking specifically at Taves, Crosby, Weber, Doughty's gotten in there, you know, slightly a bit later. Um Bergeron, Bergeron of course. Uh the, the seven guys that were in Vancouver and then one in Sochi and one here and then a lot of those guys were back in 2005 Ryan Getzlaff as well um, at the World Junior Tournament which was Canada's is viewed as Canada's most dominant World Junior team Corey Perry was he on that team? He was on that team as well I mean the way that these guys they, they've totally changed in my eyes the DNA of what Canadian hockey is I mean it, it it, and I don't mean this as any disrespect to the past, but in '72, in '87, even in 2002, Canada had to like kind of screw up at tournaments. It was almost like they didn't come fully ready or they weren't fully invested until they got close to the edge and saw over the cliff, and then they they retreated back and, and found what they had to do. I mean, that whatever, happened in
2: 2010 too.
1: It did, but yeah. that was you know the, the the players that I'm including in this were young then, and, yeah. I, and I feel yep. that. I just feel that we've never been this clinical about how great we are at hockey. I mean, we we invented the game. We care more about the game than anyone in the world. We've won more tournaments, at least big best-on-best, you know, tournaments than anyone in the world. But I don't think we've ever done it in such a calculated manner and I know some people don't find that enter- enjoyable or entertaining to me I think we're going to be writing books about this in 20 years because it's not yeah. going to happen for the next 20 years and we're going to look back I think the appreciation for this and for Sochi is only going to grow with time uh, whereas everyone loves Vancouver because it was a joy ride right. it was a roller coaster but I don't think this team would ever be up two to one in a gold medal game and allow Zach Parise to score with twenty four seconds left, and, and even risk having to score the golden goal that Crosby got. I mean, I mean, such a great moment, probably the best moment I've covered in my entire career covering hockey. Uh, being there for that, but that, but we also have to appreciate greatness and 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 there's a level that these guys play at. You know, they beat Czech Republic six nothing out of the gate because that's what they're supposed to do. You mm-hmm. know, they don't do what Team USA did, and, and I don't. I'm not trying to kick dirt on them when they've had a bad time, but they don't underestimate opponents. They don't... Even when they don't quite have their best, I just feel... This is truly special. I mean, Jonathan Taves is 46-2 and in a Team Canada jersey. I mean, that's... Like... Honestly, like they're going to build statues for him. Yeah, we're going to talk about that forever. There's no way that that will be forgotten.
2: I think we want to um, allow a certain sense of kind of emotion and drama into these kind of tournaments. It 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 a makes it more compelling to watch, but b I think you know I think hockey is very tied to to a lot of emotions with Canadians and 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 again it's it's a lot of mythology building. But the business like attitude that has had has kind of engulfed this team i I, I like to see it because it means they're taking it seriously it means they have a game plan they're not leaving anything to chance you gotta forgive us for being cynical here but as a whole is that bad for the game like is that whole to or as a whole like to have one team come in and now everybody else is an underdog i mean eventually is that going to wear on people
1: it would if it continued, but I, I don't see it continuing. I think that it ended literally last night at the Arcana Center because if you look at where this came from, that so the 05 World Junior Team kicked off five years in a row where Canada won. I don't know the math, but 80% of the guys anyway played on one of those five teams or multiple of them. Even the guys like John Tavares who've come around l- later on, Matt Duchesne uh you know those guys are part of that culture and that's just a special group that's carried through you know if you look at the recent world junior tournaments we have finland with a couple wins now mm-hmm. canada hasn't dominated in the same way and even though we have a generational talent like Connor McDavid on the horizon who's obviously going to wear the the sweater with distinction on his own i just don't see them being a machine like this team i think it's going to be far more roll the dice and lose some games and and have to win i mean i, I might be proven wrong on this but i I just don't see, you don't have the, I mean, look at Canada's top three centers at multiple events now have been Crosby, Tays, and Getzlaff. And then you have Patrice Bergeron basically playing the wing and taking some face-offs at all those tournaments. I mean, we're talking about like the top centermen of this era. Those guys are all in the top six to 10, depending on how you view it. I mean, this is just a dominant, special time to be Canadian. And, and so, yes, if they did this again, I, I don't think they're going to Pyeongchang. We can have yeah. that discussion at some point. But let's say they did it again four years at, at a, you know, conceivable World Cup. And four years after that, yes, that would be bad for the sport. But I think we're in a cycle. And that's why I believe it's special and, and, and why we'll look back on it more fondly. Because I, I think it's going to end and everyone's going to go, oh, wait, Team Canada can lose again? Because mm-hmm. it hasn't felt like that for about a decade
0: and i think finland's better than they showed i think sweden's better than they showed i don't think the difference is is uh, that stark uh, may have just been represented that way this tournament that this particular two weeks was one in which canada hit the ground running um, but but i think i think sweden is better than they showed finland and and uh, well the
1: americans to me
0: yeah i mean that's a different story cuz yeah. they're having
1: all kinds of success at the whether it's the under 18s it's not they're not winning every world juniors but they're they're in there like they're not they're not an also-ran in any way in those tournaments. They have Austin Matthews. They have Jake, Jack Eichel, Johnny Goudreau. I mean, they won't have the depth yet of Canada at that top end, but they're going to be able to put together a team, be it in 2018 or 2020, that we're going to go, whoa, yeah. that's pretty good. And so you know, while this was clearly a low moment for that program, I don't know how you look at what's going on in a wider sense in, in America, even with how many players are being drafted now. I mean, they're just getting volume which is what we all expected eventually from a bigger country that has more resources than our own. And, and, you know, I think that they're going to be the biggest rival long term.
0: So this was the team Canada show at the world cup, but I think it was also a uh, brief love affair with Ralph Kruger and, and team Europe, but, but largely Ralph Kruger and retelling that story of what happened with him in Edmonton and where he's been since Babcock asking him to join the team Canada brain trust. Um, what did you learn about him, or or find out about him that you didn't know? Uh, do you have a thought about him returning to the NHL, and and why why do why should people like Ralph Kruger more uh, if they don't?
1: I feel a bit like an angry hockey, hockey hipster because <laughs> I just happened to cover the World Championships from '06 to 2012, and he was the Swiss coach at all, each of those events. And you know, being one of the only or one of the few Canadian writers ever there, you know, I always had a chance to bend his ear and and chat with him. So I kind of knew about him even before he came to Edmonton, and, and and knew him at least on the sort of interpersonal work level that we deal with these guys. But I mean, he was absolutely the star, and and just just a fascinating upbeat guy you know I was I gave Canada a lot of credit actually in Sochi when they had the courage to hire him because in some ways if you're willing to be arrogant I mean he's he's the guy that built teams that could beat Canada like teams he he knew how to beat Canada with a less skilled team and he showed it with the you know Switzerland and you know he even gave them scares I I believe they won one of the games of the world championships I covered I mean this guy I mean while he's born in Canada he's lived you know his entire adult life in Europe, and I'm sure he identifies on some level as a Canadian, but he's he's not exactly one of us, and so it's it's not necessarily. I don't think the Canadian style, or even really an international hockey yet, where you hire people from other countries uh to work for you. And it was an acknowledgement that we needed help with the Big Ice, and look how that worked out. It was a tremendous move, and I, again, I just thought it was not the sort of thing we usually see them do. So anyway, I've I've been blown away by by Ralph, and you know, I'm more convinced now than ever that. That if he ever wants to coach the NHL again, he will. I don't know that it, why he would want to do that. If you're the chairman of a football, yeah, club. I was just
2: going to say like we want to talk about the guy, you know, in the way he kind of revolutionized Swiss hockey, German hockey. I mean, how rare is that? You, you're not just hired on, you know, as in into another organization, another sport to be the chairman of a Premier League team. I mean, people should be tapping this guy's for magical syrup like this doesn't happen and it's I, I think there's really if he does he if he wants another shot shouldn't any team listen up
1: for sure and, and you know he was contacted by an NHL team just this summer to see if maybe he was interested and you know obviously wasn't at that time you know it It'll be a question for him to reflect on, though, I think. I mean, obviously, I think it's safe to assume he's earning more money in this job than he would as an NHL head coach, unless his name was Mike Babcock. Maybe he's in the same range. I mean, he's doing something that's very interesting and... and you know but it maybe this will stoke some fires within him you know he hadn't coached a hockey game in a couple of years before this tournament and clearly something special went on with his team i mean i think in some ways there wasn't enough credit given to how well team europe played i mean to me they weren't being that cynical, like I thought, they really pressured the puck. I mean, obviously they, they don't have this the high end skill of Team Canada to score some highlight real goals the same way, but they didn't just sit back. I mean, they when they beat Sweden in the semifinal, like they beat Sweden. They mm-hmm. played. Yeah,
0: it, was, it was Sweden that sat back.
1: Right. It's strangely. I mean, they, but you know, so. This guy can do whatever he wants. I, I think the one thing about Ralph, too, you know, he's written books on leadership. Mm-hmm. He, I know he was a highly sought after public speaker in Switzerland during his time with. Uh, the national team and with businesses and things of that nature, just about running an organization. And almost, I feel like the game is caught up to where Mm. he's been for a long time, where now I think it's far more valued that a coach can communicate with his players. It's, it's, it's a little bit less of a top down organization. The way most hockey teams work now, your stars, you have to explain things to them. You have Mm. to make them feel part of it. And I think a lot of the great communicators, John Cooper's one that jumps to mind in Tampa. This is kind of the new style of coach, and you know guys like randy carlisle were raised in an era where players did what they were told and and right. and it was kind of a hard-ass mentality and and you know ralph has been this way for a long time but i think maybe his gifts are being appreciated more because the sport has evolved to a spot where he he kind of fits in a little more comfortably
2: but but now what i mean you reported that team europe is one and done
1: yeah they, i think there's a small wiggle room there but likely i i would, they I'll put it this way: They entered this event as a one one off entity. Okay. One thing I haven't yet been able to totally calculate, I guess, or get the right information is that has this truly changed the way everyone feels you about mean it?
2: Making the making it to the final.
1: Yeah, the yeah. fact that they had this success, the fact that you know Anze Kopitar, the day after the loss, is tweeting a photo of himself in the Europe sweater and saying that people probably don't realize how much pride he wore that sweater with that it mattered. You know. He it was more than he had to do. I mean, that those guys really enjoyed it. That it wasn't a disaster might change the mind, but I, what they really want is a qualifying system, and they want yeah. to create something where in the four years between events that there's talk about this. There's a buildup that, that that you know that's the long term play here. But maybe four years from now they stick to this. But I, I'd be surprised.
2: Well, that that was kind of my again a bit of a bigger question. I mean, when we think about. World Cup. When we think about soccer. I mean, obviously, this is you know an event that's probably the marquee sporting event across the planet. It's almost a hundred years old. It is. It is. It's as big an event as you can get. And like you said, that you have to qualify for this. Um, there's 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 drama at every tournament, and we wouldn't be naive enough to think that you know the NHL and 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 the IIHF can get there but what does the nhl have to do moving forward to kind of legitimize this event in a way because i mean i think a lot of people myself included when you when i saw the under 23 thing and i saw the team europe i, I scoffed and I, I know i'm not alone so what are they going to do believe the toronto
1: sun called them euro trash yeah, yeah that
2: i mean we'll, we'll leave that one for another day but but i'm but, just saying that yeah. that's a
1: reflection of how far how opposed some people were to this thing
2: right and but what are you like what are you going to do because i mean it to me that the thing that really that bothered me and i've mentioned this a few times you look back at the quarterfinals in 2014 and latvia let's face it they were close you know if 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 latvia squeaks a goal by canada this whole golden generation conversation wouldn't be happening and it would be the upset of the century so what's the nhl going to do what do you think they're going to do to kind of say all right let's not make this a gimmick let's make this a thing that you know, it's, and it's not just a matter of okay, here's the rosters. You're all showing up. You're qualified. Because look, the other thing too, at the World Cup of soccer, every tournament, there's always one team where you're always like, hey, where's, uh, you know, where's England? Oh, they didn't qualify. What? How did that happen? So, so what do you think? Or do you think they even
1: have to do that? I think the first thing they have to do is stick to a schedule and 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 commit to it now. And let people know. That this isn't up in the air. That this isn't going to be subject to six months of negotiations and stories about what's wrong and right. Like to me, I think you have to do it. The problem is they already have an issue built in. In September 2020, there's a chance that the CBA will be reopened, and there's the possibility. And I hate to raise the the word, especially among a listenership like we have, to say it lockout. (laughs) And you know the experience out of 2004, where when the last World Cup was contested. Basically, right up until the moment the CBA expired and then the lockout started that ultimately canceled the entire season of hockey, which is still incredible to put your mind around that that ever happened. They, they don't want that again. So they already have an issue in my eyes because they can't say it's definitely 2020. And, and, and you know, there's lots of talk and interest um in, in this a Ryder Cup format, I think for 2018. Obviously, in the next, we're about two months away from knowing one way or the other on Pyeongchang 2018. But, you know, I'm a little uncomfortable with, with how little clarity, I guess, there is on the international calendar. Cause, this is one of the stated goals out of the current CBA that's in existence. They actually created a new section in the CBA which the players and and the league agreed that they were going to make a concerted effort to grow the game internationally. Uh, There's actually language in there that every team can be told they're going to play a game in Europe, a regular season game. There hasn't been any since that document was signed. And obviously, they're in business together in the World Cup. I mean, to me, I think you have to settle all this and not have everything be kind of up in the air because... That's, I mean, you know the Winter Olympics are happening every four years. It's, it's like, it's winter. You know when it's coming. You know, and, and it builds anticipation, I think. And, and obviously, to legitimize it, we have to have five of them in a row. And we have to get stories. And one year, someone's going to get heartbroken. And then then they come back to the next four years, and they avenge that loss. I mean, that's, I think that you start telling a story through multiple tournaments. I mean, that's... That's when it matters. And then you know, then we all grow older and we have kids and they have kids and, and everybody kind of has this feeling that they're tied to this thing and they remember even things that they weren't alive for, the way we remember seventy two, even though mm-hmm. the three of us weren't born then. So, you know, that's that's what has to happen, but you know, I don't wanna be cynical. I just I, I'm not certain that's gonna happen. And and that it does it troubles me one day after this thing's over because I think that this was actually a good start for that tournament. Like, the players... Like, John Taves was like, we realized how much this means after he won. Like, it, he's not just saying that. He doesn't have to say right. that. Like, they enjoyed themselves. And, you know, let's face it, if you're a lead at something, you want to play the best. And they... Even in their careers, even though a lot of those guys have done it what we would call a lot, it's not really that much. Right, sure. It's like 3% of the games they've ever played or something. Mm-hmm. You're not Probably even less than that. Yeah. So these guys want those opportunities too because all of a sudden Brad Marchand... Like think of what was known of him for people that don't watch every Bruins game, but with the labels attached to him, the things that were thought of him from people who don't know him and contrast that to how kids today are feeling about Brad Marshawn, kids that are 10 years old and watch that game and 15 years from now, when they're having a beer with their buddies are going to say, Hey, remember the time Marshawn scored that goal? Like that's, that's how this works. You get put on a level you don't always get to. And you know, I think we need more of it and I think it's got to be regular and, I'm not sure. I know the NHL believes that, but they see the issues rather than the kind of, to me, the greatness in the whole thing.
0: So uh, last one from this side of the mic and for the listener at home, uh, Josh and I are sharing a mic. It's almost like Chris is our uh, lead singer and we're the do-up. I feel like like I'm
1: hogging the, uh, (laughs) I got one to myself.
0: Um, I might be throwing darts or I might be just trying to connect some dots here, but we saw the power of team North America and the interest in that team, uh, the skill on that team. Uh, and just to jump over to some NHL stuff NHL news um, you know we had Jacob truba's trade request uh, something's brewing with Tobias reader uh, we saw what happened with Jonathan Druin last year I don't know if this is a, if, if there's a real connection here but I've just been kind of thinking about the power of the young player in the NHL and and whether this is really the time uh, of the, you know, the 18 to 22 year old in the NHL, how much power you see them wielding, whether it's contract trades, uh, jersey sales, and and a team like Team North America. Uh, What is, are there connections there? Do you see signs of this being uh, a younger and younger game for the NHL and, and its young players?
1: Well, certainly the league's got younger in the last 10 years, 11 years since since the creation of the salary cap. But I think what's really changed in the last few is that not just one or two smart teams, but every team now realizes you need players on an entry-level contract that can contribute to your team if you're going to have success because you're going to have to pay veterans and stars and kind of the reliable players on your team a lot more money just because of the way the system works, and you need a few guys just to stay under the, the, the upper level that can contribute. And at the same time, the agents and players have also realized that they have a lot of value. Uh, but that they can only command certain things when it comes to salary on the first deal and, and bonuses that they get. And, and it's created a real tension point around the second contract players get because a lot of guys want to jump up to basically being considered a member of the team. I mean, we saw this with P.K. Subban in Montreal. Uh, he ended up sitting out a couple games at the start of the year, I believe, out of the lockout and then signing a two-year deal in his case. Uh, Drew Doughty sat out uh, training camp uh, b- before signing his second contract. Uh, this has been a huge issue and then this uh, <clears throat> excuse me this summer we've seen more than ever and I just think that that's a product of more of these guys getting established earlier and understanding their value and the teams understanding how much they have to try to control the value and and I don't think it is a coincidence that that, that this is going on, and, and I don't see it ending. So you have Johnny Goudreau, Nikita Kucherov. I mean, right there, those are arguably two of the, the best players on their team, even. And that's no disrespect to especially the Lightning, who have a lot of candidates for that label. But Nikita Kucherov is like they're toast without him. And he knows that, and they know that, and they only have so much room to sign them, And hence, training camp is going on, and he played in the World Cup, and he's not there yet playing for them. And Rasmus Bristolite and Hampus Lindholm, it's its incredible, the number of players. And, and I don't see a solution. I, I do think, I don't even know why my brain keeps taking me there, but the next time there is a CBA negotiation that I think you'll see the league push for limits on the second contract, uh, I'm not sure what those limits will look like, but it, it might be one way. I mean, there's really no, there's never an issue with an entry level player. Essentially, mm-hmm. I mean, you can quibble over bonuses, but there's not a lot of there's not even if you're the player side, it's not that productive. I mean, you really, you just want to get signed and get playing. The second contract, if they could maybe take some of the wiggle room out, uh, then it'll become more formulaic. But the weird part is. We used to always focus on when does a player become an unrestricted free agent? It was 27 at one point. Now it can be as early as 25. That's almost irrelevant now because unrestricted free agents, for by and large, are not in a position to truly be difference makers on a team. I mean, there are some exceptions, but it's not a rule anymore that you want to sign a 27-year-old guy who's hitting the open market for huge money. I mean, there was even a debate about Steven Stamkos. Mm-hmm. In lots of markets, I mean, in Toronto especially, but even in Buffalo, like what's the number, if you sign him, At what number does it become a diminishing return? And, you know, that was not the way we thought of hockey pre 4 I mean, you needed those guys. Those guys hit home runs at age 31. That's when you're getting your mega deal. That's mm-hmm. when Bill Guerin's earning $10 million a year back then. And, you know, that's just the evolution of the sport. I almost feel bad for the guys. The young guys are contributing so much more, and they have less of an ability to make, you know, a fair amount of money. And let's face it, careers are short. It's not that fair.
2: But what does that do, like, to the locker room? Because I'm thinking about Goudreau and Kucherov specifically. I have to believe that they both really want to re-sign. I mean, why would Kucherov want to leave a team that's very, very close in the East? And, you know, again, why would Johnny Goudreau want to leave the Flames? Playing with Sean Monahan on a team that looks like they're, they they kind of got it together, but what does that do to a locker room when when your younger guys are demanding more and and sitting out the season? When it like it's it's a bit of a catch twenty two because I think they want to be there, but they have to protect their best interests, right? But then you still have vets that are you know are looking at that and 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 perceiving you know Kucherov and Goudreau's issue in a very different way, right?
1: They are, I think that there's actually an issue of the veteran now. Because most teams acknowledge you need some. Obviously, you can't ice a team entirely of 22-year-old kids. But, but so many veterans are being pushed out at 31, 32. I mean, what is a veteran anymore? I mean, you, you get the extreme example. If, if we eliminate Yarmir Yager because he occupies his own space and he's not, he's not in a trend. universe. He's a trend unto himself. Yeah. You know, there's so few guys in their 30s in the NHL now at all. And so the locker rooms are ruled by young players. And, you know, I don't know for sure, but I, I think even the players probably get it more than ever because they, cause they look around and they're like, I'm done at 30.
2: Mm-hmm. You got to get you it You got to
1: make it when you can make it. Yeah. I mean, if you're Johnny Goudreau, you've played, yes, you've only played two seasons, you, in full seasons in the NHL. You don't have any rights. You can't even sign an offer sheet with someone else. But you were a top six score in a league last year. Like yeah, you want to get paid eight million because five years from now you might not ever be that way, and I don't like not to make this about a business, but it's still a business, and mm-hmm. and you know it's it's a tough spot for these guys. You know I, I'm sympathetic, and you're right. In a, in a locker room, it I think it's a weird time to be in a locker room. It's kind of the easy answer. I, I don't know that there's a normal anymore. I actually had a very revealing conversation with Joffrey Lupul last February. It's funny. I was just doing. A, I needed a, a feature story for a weekend, and he had just. I believe it was a seven hundredth game. So he was kind of in a reflective mood because mm-hmm. people were asking him. But I started asking him about the end at that point. Just like, Do you think about the end? And and he just opened up. I've never I didn't expect him. You know, it's sometimes as a journalist you're fishing and you don't mm-hmm. usually yeah, expect yeah. to catch a ten pound bass, but uh Joffrey Said he thinks about it all the time. He said he he thinks back. His first season was oh three oh four before the lockout, and he said the whole locker room was thirty years old. Like yeah. an, and I believe he was a seventh or eighth overall pick. He was a very highly rated draft pick. But he said when he came in, he had no confidence at all that he could like impact the game. Really, that he was just trying to not not really screw keep up. His head above water, right? Whereas he said, uh, the guy he referenced in that interview, he said, Dylan Larkin, he's like, he goes out there and he takes the game on his shoulders, and he's, Mm -hmm. whatever he was last season, 19 years old, and, and he's like, that just didn't happen, and then he said, conversely, when you're in my shoes and you're making money, but, you know, you're playing fourth line minutes, like, you know, he knew the end was coming, and then, just incidentally, literally, he played one more game after we spoke, and the Leafs shut him down, and... It arguably might be his last game of his career. It's total coincidental timing on the yeah. part of that interview, but it's a window into what he was thinking at that time. And he was just saying, he was talking a little bit about how the locker room dynamic now, he feels a bit like a fossil, and he was 31 years old.
2: But it's funny how, how this has all changed. I mean, last season, the season before, the talk about you know the shift in, in locker room characters was always about, okay, the fighters, and they're disappearing. And so how is that going to change the game? And now, like, you know, what you're saying is that, like, okay, veterans, 30-year-olds are disappearing. And I'm, I'm looking around, like, we, I,
1: I feel kind of ancient just kind of saying that. Well, I'm 34, and there's and, not many guys young, or older than me in the league still. There are not.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, like, you you have to wonder. I mean, you've mentioned it, but we got to talk about it. You've, you've ha- you have to wonder what the, the you know – as players get younger and younger, as teams value younger players more and more, what's that going to do to the next CBA? Because we'd be foolish to think. Uh, sorry, I, I'm, I'm speaking for everybody, but I'm I'm not. I have to believe there's another lockout coming. I've just seen it. We've seen it happen, and I have to believe there's going to be another, you know, kind of radical shift to the next CBA. And it sounds like young players are going to have more and more rights. I know. I'm, I'm putting I mean, thoughts. I'm, I'm putting. I'm putting. Some, I'm putting stuff out there.
1: Well, and but I think you know the whole idea of a salary cap was done to try to control everything. So if everything, is, if if the league continues to push for more and more control and to keep everything very tightly, you know, in boxes, you can only sign for this and this long and and all these things. Man, I mean, <laughs> I I don't see how. I guess we all have to believe there's another one coming. Mm-hmm. I don't want to. Feel that way. That it's the darkest points of my yeah, life. Yeah. I mean, what do we do without hockey on a November Saturday night? I mean, it just feels wrong. Um, Toronto Rock, and I realize there's other hockey. There's, there's, just, there's, yeah, only, yeah, yeah. There's junior hockey. There's, you know, I still go to my nephew's games, but it's not the it's not. The same, especially professionally. Don't don't we vote on
0: the greatest Canadian when there's no hockey? I think. Yeah.
1: That's a good <laughs> Do you know what's funny? I, I was recalling uh, with a colleague of mine that the last lockout NHL.com did a whole f- series of stories on the '92-'93 season because it was the 20 year anniversary during that lockout, and that's my favorite ever season. I know you guys are into this oh, yeah. <laughs> this uh, sort of thing, listening to some of your recent podcasts. But that was the only good thing to come out of that lockout is it allowed me to relive all these awesome moments from for me like by far the best hockey season I ever lived or watched Uh, you know that they was documented just breathlessly all over (laughs) NHL.com during that period so some good comes out of the bad I guess
0: well maybe that's a good way to end because uh, we have been doing these retrospectives on uh, previous seasons I I, I always want I always ask this question of people of what their favorite season or what their first season they watched was and and you just see them light up like Jeff Merrick will talk about 1987 any day of the week if you ask him um, so we would love to have you back to talk about 92 93 and uh, maybe if you just have a, a final Do you have th- five hours yeah I, I mean please please uh, that that was where I was born out of hockey as well uh, but. Do you have like like maybe one story or one instance of of why ninety two ninety three was like a light bulb moment for you?
2: Is this, so is this is a preview?
0: This, this is it, a straight up trailer. That's right. This is
1: a trailer. Is there ever been a season where more happened? That's no. That's what I think. I mean, you had like Manon Raymond playing games and the invention. I think that was Tampa and Ottawa's first year. Mm-hmm. You have Eric Lindros coming Bevan's into the first league. Year, right? yeah. Like Lindros comes into the league, and obviously we'd see him in the 91 Canada Cup, so like the hype around that guy was crazy. All of a sudden, you've got Doug Gilmore lighting Toronto on fire, Patrick Waugh in the Habs. You're a game away from those two meeting in the final, which,
2: I mean, had the internet existed, it would have broke the internet. 1993. I, I know. I know. You can't even think about it. You're right? going
1: to take me to a dark point in my youth. So CJ is CJ is is,
2: is wistfully scratching his new beard. I looking believe off it was. The I believe it
1: was May thirty first, nineteen ninety three, that the Leafs lost Game Seven to the the Kings. I mean, <laughs> but it's not even just that. Like to me, I think Gretzky. I didn't do any research on this, unfortunately. I guess before I come back, I'll be allowed to cheat a little bit. But I think Gretzky had a tough regular season, from what I remember. Yeah, he had and then, a back injury. Yeah. And then he obviously roared to life in the playoffs and basically beat the Leafs. You know, a team that ultimately would never, you know, sign him later on, even though he wanted to come here. Uh, I just it it had everything. It, it had tons of scoring. It was the last year where we had the Wales Conference and Campbell Conference. It it was just the coolest thing. I remember they had the '75 patches, I believe, on the yep. the sweaters, and I had my Pro Set trading cards, and they <laughs> had all those on there. You know, it was just the right time in my life, frankly, too. You know, being 10 or 11 years old, whatever I was at that time, like that's that's when you are aware of what's going on. You have some benchmark for history; it's a very narrow one, but you don't have that prior to that age, and you have nothing else to do. And I just watched an insane amount of hockey played an insane amount of road hockey real hockey with my buddies and then lived and died two months with the leafs as a as a young leafs fan growing up near toronto uh, i mean it was just tremendous like i i didn't at that point believe the leafs could be good i mean i grew up right when they were just awful forever do you know what there's a lot of people in the city right now that are that age that are the same thing whenever they eventually get back to the playoffs and do something there's gonna be all these kids that go oh we, oh wait Mm-hmm. there's playoff wins in my city too it's not just something you have to watch from Pittsburgh or LA on television but I don't know it was just It's to me it's the best hockey we can get into like all of it I, I, I don't remember much I'm not I got a yeah. bad memory sometimes but that season is like I can like see it still and you know the night that the Leafs played Detroit in game 7 uh, my parents were out for the night and uh, one of my buddies was over because they were out with his parents and we had a babysitter and my buddy when when the leafs went down in the third period wanted to play hide and go seek cuz he'd like kind of <laughs> he he'd bailed on the leafs and like i refused cuz i was steadfast <laughs> and i was a huge Doug Gilmore fan like like ridiculously big Doug Gilmore fan and and you know he ties the game and then obviously borshevsky in overtime but like i just remember like that was that was even bigger... I was a huge Jays fan as a kid, but that was even bigger, I think, than the Jays winning the World Series. Like, that mm-hmm. just... Well, it beca- wasn't expected. Because the Jays were good yeah. all my life up to then. They just never quite got over the hump till 92 and 93. But, you know, the Leafs were just... It was like it was out of nowhere. That How did this happen? And, you know, my brother... Uh, pat burns was signing autographs at the eaton center and my brother got my hat signed he was in university then and he like gave me that for a christmas gift and i just like treasured this pat burns autograph hat i mean who cares about a coach when you're a kid but yeah. i just i just it was all so vivid i guess and and you know i think that we can get into all sorts of stuff and if i even do a little cheat sheet i'll probably remember a little bit more cheat uh, we're gonna have we do it.
0: bibles we're all gonna bring in those old uh, those old like yearbooks So Josh, Chris and I are going to go to the library now And uh, we'll see you again next next (laughs) week I'm going to go watch The Passion Returns Yes, Yeah, weekly viewing
2: Uh, CJ, thanks for coming in, thanks for joining us Um, We are going to have obviously a few more podcasts soon We're going to figure out this 92-93 one very, very soon Uh, Check out Homestand Sports for the next live puck talks Leave us a rating and review if you can
0: Joe, anything to add? Uh, I'm just stoked. about. Uh, I'm just in 1992-93 right now. I, I don't have any thoughts left.
1: I'd rate you a five.
0: If you, a, a, a five just on our level of enthusiasm for 92-93?
1: And just for all-around good work. You're, I, you're, I, you're a must-listen for me even when I'm not a guest. I appreciate that. Uh, great. Thanks for listening.